You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, Hospitality. Abraham is sitting among the great trees of Mamre, later called Hebron, when he receives unexpected visitors who turn out to be the Lord and two angels. He doesn't know who they are at first, and just responds the way he normally would, with humility and hospitality. So first we'll look at the idea of hospitality, using Abraham and Sarah as our example. There are several Bible verses about hospitality. First a few in the Old Testament. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. That's in Deuteronomy 10.19. And do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt, Exodus 22:21. So the precedent is related to the Exodus. Since they were strangers, they should remember how it felt. Then in the New Testament, Matthew 25:35 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And later in that same chapter, he says, it says, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So how we treat others is how we would treat Christ. We're not to care for only the most popular or those with whom we have the most in common. Then Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. An example of this is here with Abraham. The rewards of hospitality are spiritual. There are always blessings to the giver as well as the receiver, even when they aren't this dramatic. Romans 12.13 says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have the opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So our hospitality is to include all people, believers and unbelievers, strangers and friends, but especially believers. Titus 3.14 says our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So we do it as we have opportunity and we meet urgent needs. Titus 1, 7 and 8 says, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So it is a characteristic of all believers, but especially those in leadership. 1 Peter 4, 9, and 10 says to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We need to have the right attitude and avoid grumbling. It's easy to become resentful, like Martha of Bethany, or weary of it. I've been told that I'm not the most fun to be around when I'm preparing for guests. I want things to be perfect, so I get a little stressed. 
I get like Martha, Bethany, and feel like I'm doing all the work and everyone else is sitting around. It is a gift given by God, and it is to be used to build up fellow believers. The idea of stewardship is that we are entrusted with something that belongs to someone else, and we need to use it wisely as someone who must give an account. In this case, we are stewards of our homes and finances. Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So even though there is a certain amount of exhaustion involved, there is also great reward if we persevere. Hebrews 10.34 says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Although this refers to persecution, if you've ever had children or teens in your home, you know that sometimes things can get broken or stained or ruined. But if we keep this perspective on our possessions, it's easier to hold on loosely. We have a better and an enduring possession for ourselves in heaven. In Luke 14, 12-14, we read, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So this is Jesus explaining the difference between entertaining and hospitality without using those words. He talks about the intent and promises eternal rewards. And I don't know if you've ever considered this, but the earliest example of hospitality is in the Garden of Eden. God provided a suitable dwelling place for Adam and Eve food, fellowship with him, and suitable companionship with each other. Even when they sinned, he provided clothing, forgiveness, and a promise. Other biblical examples of hospitality include Abigail, who brought a feast for David's men, the Shunammite woman and her husband, who would regularly provide meals and a guest room for the prophet Elisha whenever he passed by, Mary and Martha of Bethany, who often hosted Jesus and the disciples, Lydia, who housed and provided for Paul, Barnabas, Luke, Silas, and Judas, and Philemon, who had a guest room set aside for the Apostle Paul. But we'll look at Abraham and Sarah as an example of hospitality. In biblical times, the custom of hospitality stemmed from a nomadic life where public inns were scarce and every stranger could be a potential enemy. It was offered to create trust with strangers in case the roles were reversed and the hosts found themselves traveling through the stranger's land in need of food and care. Guests were treated with respect and honor and their animals were given provisions. Sitting by the door of his tent in the afternoon, Abraham sees three strangers draw near. He is unaware of their supreme dignity and for this reason his welcome is a better example of hospitality. He wasn't just trying to impress them because he knew who they were. He greets them and begs the strangers to honor him by resting under his tree and accepting a morsel of bread. But this morsel of bread becomes a huge meal. 
a tender and good calf, cakes, butter, and milk. Um, there's a quote in a book called Hebrew Ideals in Genesis that says, A gentleman makes light of favors when he is doing them. He thinks he is receiving an honor when he is conferring a kindness. And in the same book, it also says, Abraham and Sarah have many servants, but they busy themselves to prepare the meal with their own hands, and when the table is spread under the green tree, he stands to wait on his guests. So scripture tells us, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And in this case, they were serving the Lord himself as well as to angels. So back to that same book, Hebrew Ideals in Genesis, <clears throat> there's another quote that says, Abraham's is a sweet, stately, noble hospitality. Times and manners change. Every age has its etiquette, and East differs from West. But courtesy and loving kindness are the same under all guises. True welcome never consisted in meats and drinks, but in the affection of the heart. Love can make a little gift excel. The sympathy which feels for others' needs, the kindness which is happy in serving, the modesty which says little and does much, the open house and heart and mind, these are the elements of hospitality. So we studied Theophanies in chapter 16, so we won't repeat it here, except to point out that this is a clear example of one. Here we see the Lord eating and drinking. He had a mouth to eat with and feet to wash. Did you ever wonder why they ate this meal? It's not that they needed to eat, but covenants were often celebrated with a meal. And they had just uh, done the covenant in uh, chapter 15. So, while they are eating, they ask where Abraham's wife Sarah is. He answers, she is in the tent. She is actually eavesdropping. Abraham was promised descendants 24 years earlier when he was a young 75-year-old. The Lord tells Abraham that the son he has been promised will arrive in a year's time. So finally, he has a time frame. Other similar annunciations of upcoming births in the Bible are to Samson's parents in Judges 13, the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, and Zechariah in Luke 1. So Sarah may have wondered why God ordained her barrenness, but the affliction only magnifies God's power. Sarah's response is not of faith, but of disbelief. The news seems too good to be true. Perhaps Abraham had told her what God had said about the child of promise coming through her, but she knew the state of her body, that she was decades past menopause, as she was 89 and Abraham was 99 years old. So she laughed to herself. She didn't say anything out loud, but merely thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Abraham had also laughed at the news, but God knew that behind Abraham's laugh was faith, and behind Sarah's was doubt. God, who hears even our thoughts, asks Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Busted. But then, he adds, Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. A son through Sarah was promised in 1716. Here, the stranger identifies himself as the Lord, gives a precise time frame for the miracle to occur, 
and reveals his omniscience. The belief in miracles is easy when you start with an answer to the rhetorical question, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Then when you see that everything he has ever promised has come to pass exactly as he said it, it removes all doubt. When it's hard to trust God, remember who God is. He created the universe out of nothing and raised Christ from the dead. And are our circumstances more insurmountable? But even though Sarah had just been shown that God knew her thoughts, she was afraid and lied. She said, I did not laugh. One sin often leads to another. But God doesn't let her get away with it. But because he loves her, he rebukes her. They both knew the truth. So he says, yes, you did laugh. Verses 16 through 33, Abraham pleads for Sodom. Abraham may have clued in at this point that these were no ordinary men. As they get up to leave, he accompanies them part way. The Lord contemplates sharing his plans with Abraham. He says aloud, either to himself or to the angels, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? He didn't share this information as if Abraham could talk him out of it, but because it would certainly occur and Abraham had relatives who would be impacted. Then we see God's assessment of Abraham's future. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. So this emphasized his special role in the plan of God. Um, this was certain, and the reason follows. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he had promised him. Again, he identifies himself as the Lord who has chosen Abraham and the one who will bring about what he has promised him, descendants, land, and blessing. There's a correlation between God choosing Abraham, Abraham's obedient life, and the fulfillment of the promises. God showed the confidence he had in Abraham's faithfulness and obedience. This is similar to God's stamp of approval on Job's life. Then the Lord shares his plans and the reason for them. He has heard an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah that is so great and their sin is so grievous that he has come to personally investigate. He already knows, but this shows us that he always judges fairly. He says, if not, I will know. We'll see the nature of their sin in the next chapter. So this reminds us of the Tower of Babel when God came down to personally inspect the building project. At this point, the two angels head toward Sodom to investigate on behalf of the Lord, since they are his servants. Abraham remains with the Lord, having understood that God intends to judge these cities because of their sin. They had reached the point of no return. Because his nephew Lot and his family live in Sodom, Abraham appeals to the Lord on their behalf. This is the first intercessory prayer recorded in Scripture. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This question revealed Abraham's awareness of the mercy of God and the distinction he'd make between the good and the bad. Then he throws out a hypothetical number of righteous people who may be living in the midst of the sinful city as his nephew Lot was. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place?
for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Abraham was thinking of his family members. Then Abraham appeals to the character of God. <clears throat> Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So this was a rhetorical question, but it revealed Abraham's understanding of who God was. He was not only just, but merciful. The same God who judges sin saves sinners who call on him. And it's God's standard of what's right and wrong, not our own. So God answers, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Remember, God already knows exactly how many, if any, righteous people there are in the city. But this is from the viewpoint of Abraham, and he prays for God to remember mercy in the midst of judgment. We do the same when we pray for the salvation of those we know, even though God already knows whether or not they will come to faith. Then we have a progression, or rather regression, of the number of righteous people required to be found there in order for the whole city to be spared. We see Abraham's compassion on sinners through his earnest prayer. James teaches us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So Abraham doesn't want to anger God, um, but he does speak boldly, all the while recognizing that he is nothing but dust and ashes and has dared to speak to the Lord. This is the proper attitude in prayer. We are not presumptuous. We do not dictate to God or bring our shopping list of desires to him, but humbly ask him to be merciful as we know he is. Abraham suggests 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, and finally 10. The fact that Abraham uh, thought to offer such a low number reveals that he knew well how wicked the inhabitants of Sodom were and the ineffectiveness of Lot's influence and witness. And by naming such a low number, he probably had in mind just Lot's immediate family. So God answers, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Consider his great mercy to spare the place for the sake of ten people, compared to the more than 120,000 Ninevites in Jonah's day. God does have compassion on the lost. Yet for Nineveh, they repented and were spared. There is no repentance in Sodom, but God would spare them because of the presence of believers among them, if they could be found. Yet, as we'll see, there are not even ten righteous people in the whole city of Sodom, perhaps only one. So even though the city was not spared, Lot was, and he owed that to Abraham's intercession and the mercy of God. The important thing to notice was that Abraham was not appealing to God to spare the city for the sake of the inhabitants themselves, or because it was a horrendous way to die, or by pleading extenuating circumstances. The only appeal was based on righteousness, the righteousness of God who judges, and for the sake of the righteous who might be among them. So when you consider the wickedness of our own city, how ripe it is for judgment, all we can do is appeal to God for mercy. So if he was willing <clears throat> to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, if even ten righteous people were found, Will he not spare ours for the sake of thousands of believers?
Surely the presence of believers has a preserving effect on nations. But one day when believers are taken away, judgment will fall. And this example also gives us courage to pray for our loved ones, knowing that God is gracious. We can stand in the gap. Then they go their separate ways. Nothing more needed to be said. The day of grace was over. The fate of Sodom was sealed. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? God condescended to appear in human form to encourage Abraham and to reveal his plans for his family and for Sodom and Gomorrah. A greater condescension was when his son took on flesh and lived among us. His coming fulfilled the promise made to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality to strangers, and we are to do the same. Abraham provided water so they could wash their feet. But Jesus condescended to the role of a slave and washed the feet of his disciples as an example to us. Abraham prepared a meal for God, and the two angels stood and stood by while they ate. When Jesus was resurrected, he ate in the presence of the disciples to prove he wasn't a ghost. He was a real man in a real glorified body. In the kingdom of heaven, we will partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus promised to fellowship with us. In Luke 12:35-40, Jesus speaks of a wedding banquet and says a shocking thing. He will serve his guests. It says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. God knew Sarah doubted, so he graciously rebuked her. He rebukes those whom he loves. He knows our thoughts, motives, and words. Sarah laughed because she knew it wasn't humanly possible for her to get pregnant. And Mary asked how it was possible for her to be pregnant since she was a virgin. In both cases, they were told that nothing was impossible to God because he is a God who does wonders. And that led to the greater wonder that God would forgive his enemies. Likewise, the new birth, regeneration, doesn't happen because of natural processes or family heritage, but because of God. God wasn't required to inform Abraham about his plan to judge, but he did it because of his mercy and answered Abraham's prayer of intercession on their behalf. The same God who judges sin also saves sinners. God mercifully warns of us of coming judgment and desires that we pray for others. Because he answers prayer, we can be sure he will do what is right. And this also revealed Abraham's place in the plan of God. Abraham interceded for the people of Sodom because he was like them and had compassion for them, but he could speak to God about them because he had a relationship with him. Jesus intercedes for us because he is the perfect advocate as the God-man. He knows both sides of the situation, becoming like us in our humanity, and has a relationship with his Father. God commended Abraham's faithful lifestyle. He knows us too. Abraham knew he could appeal to God because he was righteous. Likewise, we don't blame God's law or claim we're only human. The only appeal we can make to God to spare us from divine judgment is righteousness. Not our righteousness, because we have none, but the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 19. May God bless the study of his word.